This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. In the wake of the tragedy in Parkland, Florida, several big-name retailers decided to change their rules on selling certain types of guns. You also have businesses wanting to distance, distance themselves from organizations like the NRA, including Delta Airlines, Hertz, Rental Car, MetLife. But there has been a great backlash by gun owners and some politicians about these moves. So where do you draw the line between legal rights and what is best for the business and what's best for the public in some cases? We ask that question and more of Wharton Professor Eric Ortz, who joins us in studio to discuss this. He is a director of the Initiative for Global Environmental Leadership and also co-editor of the book, The Moral Responsibility of Firms. And also uh, joining us are Brian Berkey and Robert Hughes, who are both assistant professors in the Department of Legal Studies and Business Ethics here at the Wharton School. Gentlemen, great to have you all with us. Thank you for coming in today. Nice to be here. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you all. Thank you. What's been your reaction, Eric? to these recent moves by companies like like Dick's Sporting Goods and Walmart and 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 Hertz and 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 Delta Airlines. Well, I think it's very interesting. We've seen this before, but uh, there's a little bit of a difference this time as many people have observed with respect to the influence that the Parkland students have had. So, contrary I think to many people's expectations, the Florida legislature just passed a law uh, that uh, looks like it goes against the uh, NRA's views. Um, but it's really, from a business perspective, quite uh, complex. And so let me just lay out a few of the levels. So first of all, we see at the level of the business responsibility of the firms, which we teach here at the Wharton School about, you know, it'll probably be a case study. I'm going to start my MBA class off uh, next quarter. One, at that level, the question is, what does the CEO do? So if you are Dick Sporting Goods and you sell these weapons, it appears that, for example, the uh, there was a uh, one of the weapons that the uh, per, that the perpetrator the alleged per, the, the, the perpetrator of Parkland had was a Dick's weapon. Yeah. Like, so from that, so it's a near miss, right? It, it, you you then think, okay, what if he had used that weapon and it's traced to your firm? That's a pretty huge reputational hit. So they're thinking through that, and it's not only Dick's, but as you mentioned, lots of other providers who have looked at their uh, business responsibility of like, wait, do we really want to give a special deal? to the NRA for a credit card or for uh, airline travel or whatever, is that going to expose us to some reputational damage, et cetera? So that's the first level is business responsibility. Then there's sort of con- what, what um, one of our colleagues here at Wharton, who's now at the University of Toronto, had called uh, Wahid Hussein, who had called consumer responsibility, right? There's the flip side. And so lots of consumers are getting active. Hey. The Parkland students and others are calling for boycotts. So you have to factor in as a business what are your exposures to these kinds of these kinds of issues, and you might also ask what is that is that a good thing is that effective, uh, you know you can ask a lot of questions about the consumer side. Next side is investors. So a lot of investors are saying, wait, uh, maybe we should uh, reduce our risk here. What uh, or maybe we're going to be demanded of our. Uh, we're holding, if you're an institutional investor, we have a lot of other investors. Uh, what's the interest of the people who are uh, w- who are giving us the cash to invest? Yeah, yeah. So BlackRock, for example, has said, well, we're going to re- we're going to we're going to pr- have some divestment options, that kind of thing. You're going to have a movement, I would expect, similar to what we've seen on fossil fuels, et cetera, on university campuses, et cetera. Say, all right, you know, have a there's an investor responsibility. Even beyond that, though, it's more complex. There's supplier to suppliers. 
So like Walmart might take a view, but then uh, you know there may be uh, some some suppliers of retail uh, retail um, goods are saying, well, we're not going to carry this person's goods because you guys have not taken a pledge. Right. Right. So you have that issue, and then finally, there's some difficult issues about common carriers. So UPS and FedEx are kind of involved in this where UPS carries from the NRA. So they have a deal to carry from the NRA. FedEx uh, was providing a discount to the NRA. So then the question is, well, is that how do you handle that issue? Uh, it, it seems if you're a common carrier to refuse to carry something from a legally oriented uh, from a legal business seems like that's a problem. And then related to that is the media level. So Amazon is under fire because they are going to carry NRA radio. Uh, but there, you know, you can see some questions coming up. What about the First Amendment? Right. Or yeah. what about Free speech, you know, where yep. do you draw the line? It might be okay to say, no, we're not going to allow a neo-Nazi program on Amazon. But the NRA seem, you know, uh, I mean, maybe some people think they're the equivalent. But for the most part, there's a question of what goes too far. If you're, if you're providing media, it seems like there should be a, a general right to provide for everyone. And you don't, if you start to make political determinations about what show you're going to carry or not, right. then that could expose you to not only legal issues, but also what's morally fair. What's amazing to me is the fact that this this is a topic where we're obviously, we have the the, the personal level, the people involved, the, the consumer, but this is such an important business element a, a, as well. And a lot of people, I think, have a, a fear of the business having more of an influence over the personal side. It's not really the case. I think I think they're both important questions that have to have answers from a variety of different reasons, Brian. Yeah, so I think that's right. Uh, I mean, as Eric mentioned, the Parkland students and kind of others who've been kind of active in the wake of the, the recent tragedy have had quite a bit of influence. And you might think part of what's gone on is that uh, members of the public more broadly have kind of played the kind of, uh, you know, foundational role in kind of moving businesses to some yeah. extent uh, to, you know, adopt new policies. I mean, this hasn't happened after, you know, the many other school shootings and other kind of tragedies. I mean, Las Vegas and so on. Yeah. Uh, and so there's something different that, that happened this time. And one possible explanation is that, you know, one of the big difference makers has been the role of the students and others. Um but there is also a question about the role of businesses in kind of taking a leadership role on issues of great moral importance like gun control and, and related issues. And so, you know, businesses have to worry about the kinds of reputational effects that Eric was talking about. Um, and that has to do with kind of public opinion and kind of, you know, what the response of consumers is going to be to different policies that they might take. But I would argue they also have a moral responsibility in, in at least certain cases of great significance to play a leadership role where they can, uh, they can uh, even you know when that might come at some cost to their bottom line. Robert? Uh, I very much agree. And I think uh, businesses have to decide what products they're going to sell. And they're not legally or morally required to sell everything. They have to make their own decisions about and they don't not nor are they required to sell everything legal. They yeah. have to make their own decisions about what products they want on their sales. Yeah. Um, I want to go back back to something Eric said a minute ago about common carriers. There is an interest on the consumer pressure side, there's an interesting issue about um, what kinds of consumer pressure are um, uh, uh, morally appropriate and what kinds of consumer pr pressure are uh, trying to uh, uh, 
get a decision made by circumventing the political system. So we might distinguish pressure on a specific business. We don't want your specific business to sell a product that we don't want on the market from an effort to target a common carrier, especially when there are free speech issues concerned. Well, and a part of that, I think, goes to what we saw with Delta Airlines, where they have been providing this benefit to people flying to the NRA National Convention, which I guess had only been used a handful of times to begin with. Yet when they made that announcement, a, a representative from Georgia came out and said, well, if you're going to do this, we're going to take your tax break away, which, you know, again, th- th- that provides a, 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 an interesting story on a variety of different levels, kind of going back to the political angle that you were talking about. Well, I think that's right. Uh, the, that was a pretty big tax cut, and, and I think they lost it. Yeah. Uh, so I think Georgia pulled it. One of my colleagues, uh, Kent Greenfield, uh, at um, uh, um, uh, in, in the law field in the law area, has made an argument that there could be a First Amendment concern actually on that case, and I'm not sure that how that would go forward. But the argument would be the government, if it decides to take away a benefit that it, on the grounds that they don't like the politics of the of the company that might get the benefit. Right. There's some question about the legality of that, but it certainly indicates that there's uh, what you might call in the intelligence community blowback here, right? Sure. So once yeah. you start that politicization uh, of these issues, which I would argue to some extent is inevitable. I mean, I agree with my colleagues that you have to make a moral decision here. This is not something that you can just say, okay, we're not going to we're not going to play or we're going to just say, you know, let the political system figure it out. And we've seen a change in how I think the public sees that. So if you look at the millennials uh, compared to Gen Xers or um, or the uh, baby boomers, there's about 50 percent of millennials think the CEO needs to take positions on moral responsibility and it's yeah. relevant to what their uh, purchasing decisions will be. So there's a market pressure here as well as the uh, as the argue, just the, the straight out moral argument. Sometimes you have to think about what's the right thing to do here and then uh, take a position on the, it. Then you have the other instance, which I kind of mentioned at the top, where that moral decision, uh, in this case with uh, Dix and Walmart changing the age uh, limit, that they would allow somebody to purchase a gun, conflicting in certain states with the actual state law, which has been brought up quite a bit of, of the fact that uh, you have uh, uh, laws where it says 21 to be able to purchase handguns, 18 to be able to purchase rifles. So in some states, these companies are going against state law, which is another part of the friction that you have going on right now. Yeah, that's a big thing that's going to be, uh, I think, litigated. I mean, I think there's one city even that says we require all citizens to buy a gun and have it in their house. So I think that this can go pretty far in terms of what's required or not required. And in the case, I don't know of the cases yet that are coming up on that score, but you could imagine that a company might say, well, you know, we, as, as Rob said, you know, we have a right to sell what we want. We can't be forced to sell something. So there's yep. some freedom issue that, you know, kind of a freedom of enterprise issue that, you know, some company could say, okay, we're out of this business entirely or we don't have to carry someone else's product. Uh, Walmart's famous now for having put in place a supplier arrangements on sustainability. And I don't think there's any argument that that would be somehow uh, I don't think I can't imagine that a that a that a government could overturn that by a legal decision. But you know, you're right that you know, this is a very hot issue in lots of different states, and obviously it's polarized. And so I think you're you're going to see um, attempts like that to force the issue on the other side as well as uh, 
as the uh, as the as the as the gun regulation side. Rob, on the, on the legal issue, it might be relevant how a state's public accommodations laws are written and whether they protect uh, discrimination against consumers on the basis of age, uh, and if so, uh, what that age cutoff is. So, in employment, the federal law. Uh, uh, specifically singles out discrimination against people over 40. Um, I don't know. So, so we would need to look at, if we're, look, if we're, if we're concerned with a, consum a, a, um, a, a consumer's challenge to Walmart's or to a decision not to sell the rifles to people under 21, we need to look very closely at what state law. Uh, let, that, me, let me ask you this question, because I was thinking about this the other day, and the fact that we're talking about, as I said, in, in certain states, the, the age to buy a rifle is age 18. Uh, a lot of people, when Walmart and Dix decided to make these decisions, said, well, you know what? If you're 18 and you're able to vote and you're able to go to in the military, then why wouldn't you have the right to do that? Yet we also have a national law where it says you have to be 21 to be able to drink. So to a degree, we have this conflict going back for, back and forth in terms of what our expectations are of the people, of what they can do at what age in this country. Yeah, I mean, so that's clearly right. I mean, I think there's really not a good kind of moral justification for, you know, where these lines happen to be drawn on on different issues. I mean, the idea that, you know, it's too dangerous to allow an 18-year-old to buy a beer, but not too dangerous to allow right. them to buy an AR-15 is, right. is, you know, uh, not defensible in any way that I can think of. So It uh, seems, though, that we are going to see, and, and obviously with this and, and other instances, the voice of the consumer carrying more weight than ever before. Do you agree? Uh, yeah, that might be right. Um, I mean, it'll be interesting to see how this all plays out because, uh, you know, gun rights is one of these issues where kind of historically those on the kind of NRA's side have been much more vocal, even though they're, uh, you know, generally kind of a minority. I mean, you look at the polls on kind of gun control policies and, you know, significant majorities are in favor of a number of these policies, but they don't get enacted because the NRA and its members and its advocates are sort of extremely active, yeah. uh, whereas the people on the other side have historically been less active. Um, that could be changing. Uh, I mean... These kind of events, as they keep happening, Parkland, and we could go through all of the recent ones, I think are, are motivating people and especially young people to be more involved. And that may lead to a kind of change in the power dynamics. Yeah. And one of our comments, I, I agree with that. I think uh, the, the jury's out on what's going to happen on this long term. But um, And one of our colleagues, Murray Schweitzer, I think, was quoted in the New York Times, and he said, memories fade. So, you know, with the, with the yeah. expand, with the news cycles, et cetera. So the question is, in the past, memories have faded and there have been some small, uh, small movements forward. But for the most part, there's a very strong political uh, coalition with respect, you know, led by the NRA that doesn't want to have any movement on this. They're very, uh, they've been very effective politically. But I think one question here is that you, as I mentioned earlier, already the Florida legislature has adopted a statute that nobody, I think, would have predicted after this. And historically, the real big question for me is, is this going to be the start of a social movement, in part led by young people? If you think about big social movements that actually changed uh, policy and law in the United States. A lot of it, you know, look at Kent State and and student, students being shot uh, during the Vietnam War. That was yeah. a huge incident, and this and student activism certainly 
led a lot of that, um, a, a lot of uh, uh, led the country to change in that area, or uh, dogs being loosed on African American children in the South had a big effect. John uh, John F. Kennedy saw it on on TV, and and then you have the Civil Rights Act that, um, but but I think that was energized. So the question is, will this next generation, will this this generation that's coming up, that's represented by the Parkland students? And a lot of the, you know, there's some analysis where a lot of these students have to go through these, you know, almost like a duck and cover drills, right? Yeah. That we had before, yeah. like, way back in the, in the fifties, and they have back to, in those but, days it was it was earthquakes and fires, yeah. not not this particular. But it's having a psychological effect, or they're having to go to school, and they have, their parents are buying them armored backpacks, and you're going to have, uh, you know, you're now going to have more police or and armed guardians in the school, and I think. I think students growing up in this generation are saying, "Wait, we don't, we don't want that," and and uh, and that's it's possible that this will have legs, and it will depend in part, I think, on whether how how determined and the students are going to be to move this forward. Right now, it looks to me, I bet on, I would not bet against the students. You have you have marches in Washington called on this issue. Yeah, I think there's a teaching called at Penn on this issue already. Um, I don't know the details on that yet, but. But the, the, I wouldn't I wouldn't bet against the students on this one. I think things may be different this time. The other thing that's interesting in this is that when you think about all those historical cases that you bring up, the one thing that that really the consumer or in these case the kids at the at the school have that that you didn't have at Kent State and to a degree you really didn't even have around Columbine was the fact that you have the the power of social media. And that call by social media is an unbelievable tool that is being used in this in this discussion right now. Yeah. Uh, so I think that has, that's got to be right. Uh, you know, social media allows students to see, you know, how many other people are kind of thinking about these issues in the same way. It connects people around the globe. I mean, one of the things that... Uh, you know, gun control advocates like to point out, of course, is that in uh, a lot of other countries in which gun control measures are much stricter, they don't tend to have these kinds of events. I mean, they, you know, the best example is, you know, they had one back in Australia quite yeah. a while back. They passed some strict gun control measures and they haven't had a mass shooting in Australia since. Uh, so these sort of arguments uh, that, you know, defenders of, of the status quo make that like, oh, gun control measures won't actually work. You know, people who want to do this will be able to get it anyway. I mean, there's plenty of evidence that that's not true. And to the extent that, you know, this information is sort of passed along through social media in more efficient ways than it could have been before, that's going to be useful. for. Yeah, I think in this case, too, you, all, you had some amazing students. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so yeah. one thing is that this, this event uh, hit a very well, relatively wealthy uh, area. So yeah. that was one thing. But these were very well-educated students who have been talking about this kind of stuff in class and things. It was at the high school level. It wasn't uh, wasn't like first graders. So you had them you had them coming out, and, and it was also in a relatively politically liberal area. But the students, I think, took a lot of people just by shock in how articulate they were and how – and it was social media. It was, that, it was this going around social media. One of them – I mean, I was, I was just amazed. One of them was during the event taking yeah. – uh, being a, a future journalist was basically interviewing everybody. Well, what do you think about this while, that, while it's happening and then while they're locked down? So the students, I think, really have been amazing, and they seem to, uh, they seem to have uh, – 
uh, in the end, as you're, as you're mentioning, they're a lot more sophisticated than those of us who are older in how to deal with, how to, how to use social media, and it can be very powerful. Right. I understand that some of the students had uh, a training in speech and debate and that the Parkland schools have a forensics program, um, which I benefited from myself in high school and would encourage more high schools to adopt. Let me let me ask you this. You mentioned the investor side, Eric, because obviously BlackRock made the statement mm -hmm. that they did about uh, potential changes in investment strategies moving forward. Uh, that's an interesting element of it because not only are you you're talking about reaching consumers, but you're talking about reaching consumers to a degree through their retirement savings, which is an interesting element to this. Yeah, I think you know that's another dimension of this debate is the whole question of how does this factor into the the growth that we're seeing in social investing. Now, you have to be careful about what the uh, what kind of causal effect that will have. But my my own feeling is that as you have this, people are just making kind of a, a moral decision about what's okay for me to be invested in or not. And so, if you're just broadly indexed, then they're saying, wait, I don't want to be I don't want to be invested in. A company that's selling AR-15s, right? And so there's pressure then on the institutional investors to provide that, you know, to provide options, provide alternatives. Now, what whether that then has an effect on the policy level, like whether I think you know the uh, for the most part, I, I I think my finance colleagues have have convinced me that you need a pretty big market of social. Uh, of social investing before it's going to affect the cost of capital for these companies. Right. So if you're irrationally, you know, what, what an economist might say, you're irrationally divesting yourself from one company that's going to be making money in the future, then there's going to be somebody else who has less, less who, has, who doesn't have ethical scruples that will come in and buy that stock and they will make the money. So, so there, but I think that there's a, you know, even if there isn't a direct causal effect on cost of capital for companies, there's a social, uh, it's part of the the movement of like of, of how the general public is feeling about this issue, so it can then have a knock on effect on whether you're going to have regulation or not which in is, particular ways. Which is interesting because, as you mentioned, Florida passing what the 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 new law that they did, that's just one state. I mean, this is obviously an issue that we're talking about a variety of states around the country who could potentially pass legislation. The question of whether or not we actually would see it and whether or not there's enough of a movement in those particular states, especially when you think of some of the other states, specifically in the South, where the the influence of the NRA is quite a bit higher than it may be in, say, Washington State or Maine or you know some other state like that. Right. I mean, I think one thing that will be really interesting to see is how much of an issue this is in the midterm elections this November and the extent to which, uh, in particular, Democratic candidates will run on this issue uh, in places where uh, you might not expect Democrats to do that. Uh, and, you know, this will be kind of a calculation that candidates make in light of kind of their take on the political climate at the time. And uh, I mean, I don't really know what to expect, but I think it'll be really interesting to see. Uh, and, you know, the nature of the campaigns that candidates run, I think, will give us at least some indication of uh, what the people who kind of, you know, study these things carefully but, think yeah. about the direction that we'll, we'll be going in. You, you've also seen Republicans switching. So the yeah. congressman mm -hmm. from the Parkland District has now come out in favor of, like, fairly strict gun regulation. And so I think you're going to see another there's going to be a defensive moves of other Republicans. You've seen in our own state of Pennsylvania, Senator Toomey 
used to take money from the NRA, but he now is looking kind of forced. He, he's looking like he has some political sense because he stopped taking the money. He had he had he had proposed a, rel, a, a with uh, he had proposed a bipartisan background check kind of it was comparable comparatively light regulation. Yeah. but he's kind of switched. So I think that you might start. That's what will happen if this is really a social movement. Politicians on both sides are going to start to take a measure of that, and they tend to uh, they co- tend to go in the direction that their that their uh, constituents are going. And that goes back to the memory piece of this: is whether or not people will remember this in six months' time. You know, when we get to the to to the point of, uh, of elections, whether or not they will remember. Okay, well, when this legislation was being brought forth. In the state of Florida, or you know, what was the did a did a senator or congressman make a change on their position on the NRA because of what happened? I mean, we have seen too many instances. You go back to to Sandy Hook. Well, Dix at that point mm-hmm. put a suspension on the sale of these guns. They didn't eradicate it; they just put a suspension on it. Well, obviously, we've seen kind of now the impact and the change that they've had in something like this. Right. So. I mean, I think Eric's point is is right that, uh, you know, to the extent that candidates, even on the Republican side, feel some pressure from the public, uh, you know, they may end up kind of moving in ways that, that we might not have expected. But there's a real worry for, you know, those of us who are in favor of, of greater gun control that uh, they'll feel greater pressure from the NRA and its members because they remember, right? I mean, they won't forget if a Republican congressman or senator votes for some gun control measure and they'll support a primary challenger and so on, uh, it's less clear that the broader public will uh, vote in particular on this issue, you know, uh, as opposed to, you know, the tax policies that they like from some Republican office holder. Is, is it like a that. surprise to any of you that, I mean, obviously we've talked about uh, about Dick Sporting Goods and, and some of these companies that have that have made these pronouncements. Is it a surprise that we haven't seen more companies make this pronouncement? I mean, obviously Dick's is a, is a huge national sporting goods chain. Uh, Walmart obviously is a huge retail chain. And, and for both of those companies, they had these weapons in a small portion of of their stores nationally. But is it a surprise that more companies didn't come out and make these pronouncements? Robert? Um, I, I don't I don't have a view about that. Okay. Um, uh, one thing to keep in mind, though, is that a lot of gun sales take place in small uh, firms or small businesses. And when we think about what, uh, what if, if we wanted to change what guns are available, what would be necessary, that's something that we would need to keep in mind. Brian? Uh, yeah, I mean... I guess I can't say that I'm terribly surprised. I mean, I think this issue has been kind of a sticky one for a long time, and I think a lot of businesses are, you know, probably worried about backlash from the NRA and and its members and Republican officials in various places. And so, uh, you know, given the intensity of the kind of sentiment on that side and the kind of historical lack of the same kind of intensity on the other side. I think, you know, for someone with my views, it's encouraging that we've seen the small number of companies that have come out with statements. Uh, I think that might be the thing that's more surprising. 
Well, and on a uh, uh, on an optimistic note as well, <laughs> I, I think I was surprised at how fast a lot of companies came out on this, and how how many major companies we have: Delta and United in the airline yeah. industry. You have Avis, Budget, and Enterprise Rental Car. You have BlackRock. You have First National Bank. Uh, re, you know pulled the credit card that it had as a special deal for the NRA. So I think that um, for whatever reason, a lot of companies are looking out there and seeing not only the kind of moral argument that, you know, maybe from social media influence also, but re- but thinking, wait a second, how much, you know, maybe we need to take the, uh, get ahead of this issue if this is really um, going to change, that we need to get ahead in, uh, on the right side of the issue from a business point of view, as well as from a moral point of view. Great having you all here today. Thank you very much for joining us today. Eric Ortz, uh, professor here at the Wharton School, and also Brian Berkey and Robert Hughes, assistant professors in the Department of Legal Studies and Business Ethics. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.